This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? To have a conversation about Star Trek, I wanted to talk to somebody that I trust. Murray Leader is a research affiliate at the University of Manitoba Institute for Humanities. He's published on Star Trek, horror films, spiritualism in early American cinema, and he's the perfect person to talk about Star Trek with. Murray, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always good to talk to you. I want to get the autobiography stuff out of the way. How did you first become a fan of Star Trek? Well, in a way, it was almost kind of in the water when I was growing up. I, I think that uh, my brother was a, a, a big Star Trek fan, perhaps marginally less so than I'd become, you know, in hindsight. Uh, and it had a kind of cultural visibility at the time, which I think that maybe even, isn't even equal today. Um, so the years kind of in the early 90s, around the 25th anniversary of Star Trek, that was a great time to be into Star Trek because it seemed like a feature of cultural consensus that like everybody was watching the next generation. The new, everybody was excited that the new movies had come out. Like I can remember Star Trek six coming out and, and, you know, it, it wasn't just a geeky thing. That was like, everybody, everybody saw it. Everybody liked it. Everybody thought that something interesting was going on. And I don't think that that momentum a hundred percent carried on into the post TNG spinoffs. Um, but I became a, a big fan of deep space nine uh, which I think is more geeky in a certain kind of way because it was less a consensus thing than The Next Generation, which, which was just an overall hit. It, it, it seemed that everybody knew it. It was just part of the culture where DS9 ended up, this is no doubt against the, uh, the best wishes of, the, uh, of the, its creators, but it became more of a niche kind of, kind of thing. But as a consequence, it developed a very dedicated f- fandom uh, that I was certainly part of in in my teen years. And Voyager, I had a slightly different relationship with in that I watched it regularly and liked it to an extent, but I didn't become I didn't become that attached to it. In some ways, I think I actually went in the opposite. I've written about this and became more of an anti-fan. Like I was hate watching it. The the sort of fun part was being in this online echo chamber of people making fun of, you know, how derivative and repetitive it was. And only belatedly have I come to understand that it did have a different sort of value that obviously a lot of people cottoned on to very strongly, but I didn't particularly in that moment. Like a fine blue cheese, it's an acquired taste. Kind of, yeah. 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 But I, I will say too that in those early days, uh, when Star Trek was in the threshold of my consciousness, but I really didn't understand it. it. It was sort of like a bunch of floating pieces, you know, like I remember seeing bits and pieces of some of the movies on TV, but not knowing which one was which, not even 100% discriminating between the original series and the next generation. There were books floating around and, and so on that my brother had. And there weren't many toys in those days, but there were models and that sort of thing. Um, so I, it, it was sort of interesting because in the in the early days, it, it seemed like this kind of undiscriminated mass of material uh, that only later did I begin to to sort of parse my way through. People who didn't grow up through the next generation, I don't think appreciate just how popular that show was, like broadly popular. That was yeah, a really I mean, good show. They like rented out for the for the finale. It showed in arenas and stuff. Like I, 
I, I think in Calgary, that was the case that they rented out the saddle dome and like screened it there. Uh, that was like the level of its mainstream popularity. It wasn't just some, you know, geeky niche kind of market. And I don't think that's ever 100% been, been equaled again. Um, I, I mean, yes, the Abrams films have been quite popular, but it, it's a different kind of dynamic somehow. Yeah, it feels like a different interpretation of a material. Mm-hmm. What was it that drew you in? Obviously, the, the older brother. What else? Um, like, what was it that was so fascinating to you? Yeah, and different people have lots of different answers. And, you know, almost the pat cliche answer would be to say something about this, like, relatively optimistic vision of the future. Uh, uh, this idea that on display is a kind of future for humanity that's overall positive and optimistic. And it's like, okay, these problems that we're having now, we're going to outgrow those. We're going to be like, uh, we're going to be better, more evolved kind of people in the future and that we'll make it to the stars. And that will be like leaving the cradle basically. But I'm not hundred percent sure that that's what drew it to me and nor the sort of um, liberal humanistic kind of belief system that it, it tends to have. In a lot of ways, I think it had to do with world building, that, mm. that we have this very, very detailed and ever-growing kind of, kind of setting. And I was that fan who, you know, maintained a list of starships that they mentioned and their registry numbers and stuff like that. And then when they mentioned a new one, I'd go back and pencil it in. And uh, Michael Saylor uh, has this term secondary belief Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's it. And it's like uh, a belief in, a, in, a, in another world that you can sort of occupy in a mental space, but without cognitive dissonance. So that uh, as, as part of our own lives, we're also occupying these other spaces. And I think that the Star Trek universe is, is very good for that. As are many other things like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Or so on. But often I think the things which develop the most dedicated fan bases have a lot to do with world building. Uh, and the, the idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's so large and so detailed and so consistent for the most part that you do sort of believe in it, but it's, it's not, it's not that thing of people writing letters to Sherlock Holmes. It's like the reason why they did that isn't because they thought that Sherlock Holmes was a real person. It's because they wanted to find their own way into that universe. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that that, in hindsight, is a lot of what appealed to me and also what appealed to me about fantasy and what appealed to me about, you know, earlier the Chronicles of Narnia and The Hobbit and so on. I, I think world building was often kind of the thing that most appealed to me. A lot of science fiction, I think, is dismissed by some people as being escapist and too far removed. And, but I think like a, a really good example like Star Trek, that, world, that the world building actually brings you in and it makes mm-hmm. you feel a part of the, the experience. Yeah, and gives you resources to navigate through your own lives. So I, I eventually uh, joined a Star Trek group. Me and a friend uh, joined a fan club in, in uh, Calgary. And I was part of that for about five years. It, it was interesting because there were two groups in the city. And the one that I was not part of, except for peripherally, was much, much larger. And then the one that I joined because it, it happened to meet a few blocks from where I grew up. I was much smaller and much more intimate and family-like. And mm. I think that was probably the right choice. But thinking back, um, when you're like 13 or something, when I joined through, through my teen years, being able to interact with adults under circumstances of relative equality, like that 
that's something unusual and also something that you kind of need, I think, as a part of, of growing up. And it definitely afforded me that opportunity. And I made lots of friendships that I still maintain today. I'm curious to learn more about the fan community that you built um, or that you were part of. So what sorts of things would the, would the group do? Well, I'm trying to remember, did we meet every two weeks or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was something like that. And we, it was a church basement in the, in the first place. Like, I, I think, I think uh, one of the members, uh, she was a member of that congregation and we met in the, in the church basement um, of a Unitarian church. And uh, it, and we would meet, and if there are new episodes on the air of DS9 and Voyager, as it were, and I, I remember it was the first season of Voyager that I uh, joined in. So this would have been 95. So I, I would have been around 13. Um, we would review those episodes. I think we would give them numerical, like just for posterity, you know, and I always gave something ridiculously precise, like it's a 6.3 or, or something like that. It was probably completely unnecessary and annoying in hindsight. Um, and, you know, we, I think we would spend a good amount of time just talking about, like, what was on the air. Um, and uh, they, they were like informal rap sessions, I think, like that. But then also, um, uh, when a convention rolled around, there were like one or two a year, and then we would go and we would uh, be a presence promoting our our group there. Uh, some of them were Star Trek conventions specifically, and there others were science fiction conventions with, with Star Trek components. And I remember that I held off on getting a uniform for a while, but then when Star Trek First Contact came out, uh, we were invited to the to the premiere, and you needed a uniform to get in free. So I was like, okay, finally, I'm going to go buy <laughs> buy a uniform. I didn't get a ton of use out of it, <laughs> but I did wear it at conventions and stuff like that, just as, so as part of the group. The free the free movie cost you a uniform that basically you- it cost yeah. me the forty dollars or whatever that it <laughs> it took me to get a uniform. I chose That's- blue. I I chose like science science blue for some reason. Well, that that precise number. I mean that that seems fitting. That, mm-hmm. that you would give episodes. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love this, this, um, I don't have anything equivalent, um, you know, where we'd meet and, and talk about things so specifically and, and gather around some, some particular text for lack of a better word. Yeah. That sounds like a really great way to experience a show. It, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, once the internet came along and this is sort of that interesting moment when, uh, the internet is is out, but most people aren't on it yet. So the the people who were early adopter types would often come armed with a lot of quotes from the writers and stuff like that that had been been distributed, and the rest of us were just sort of in the dark on on that sort of thing. But uh, that's that's a really interesting moment, and I think that that Voyager, which came out in '95, was like the first time that they had to reckon with an online audience that mm. was providing instantaneous feedback, which would have been slower on, and um, on earlier shows. So that has implications for, you know, uh, how the show proceeded and, and so on. Mm. Um, so it was a really interesting moment, which I've tried to recapture in a couple of pieces that I've, I've written. Um, I can I can now regale undergrads with stories of the ancient internet. Basically, it's it's a very odd moment, but you know, someday people around my age will be the last people to remember before the internet, mm-hmm. uh, which is an 
very fascinating thing to think about. Yeah, the way that the communities would come together and the access to information and the ability to share information has changed so dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, you, you mentioned pieces uh, that you've worked on on Star Trek. Um, I'm wondering, like, you're working on something right now on the streaming era of Star Trek. Can you, can you clarify what that, that entails, what that means? Yeah, I was asked to do this by a friend who is uh, co-editing a collection on prestige television, on modern prestige television. And she wondered if I could write something about Star Trek as prestige television. And I thought that's, that's really kind of interesting because in a way Star Trek always was, or at least often was prestige television. Back in the 60s, that was a label that was used. It's just used quite differently than today. And uh, the fact that it won Hugo Awards and had famous science fiction writers like Harlan Ellison writing for it, um, that, that it was received as being serious science fiction in, in a way that only shows like The Twilight Zone and, and Outer Limits, uh, those were uh, sort of unprecedented at that particular moment uh, the, uh, when people still thought of, of science fiction in terms of Captain Video on TV and that sort of thing, like just as sort of more disposable kid fare. Star Trek wasn't unique, but it was, you know, one of the first shows. Uh, and likewise, The Next Generation won a Peabody Award in its first mm -hmm. year. Like it was definitely within a paradigm of prestige television such as existed at that time. But now it means something different. And in fact, I think that a lot of the ways that quote unquote Berman era, Rick Berman's era of, of Star Trek as producer, uh, fails in the early 2000s when Enterprise is like the last show of that cycle and it kind of limps through four seasons. But in the age of The Sopranos and The Wire and so on, it, it just seems irrelevant. It seems like something that's a holdover from another period. It just wasn't able to change with the times. But now we have this whole other paradigm of what prestige television means, where it's supposed to be serious and complicated and often have kind of anti-hero types and and that sort of thing. And um, Star Trek's entry into that paradigm has been pretty uneasy, uh, that in, the show, in Discovery and Picard in particular, um, there's this interesting desire in those shows to, yes, sort of establish themselves as within those modern conventions of prestige television. So there, there's the sense of darkness, Mm -hmm. uh, there's this, the sense of seriousness. The, the Federation seems like a less optimistic place, a more problematic place. And yet there's still this desire to say, okay, but we're still gonna have like this Star Trek optimistic stuff. So that becomes pretty much the arc of every season. It's like bad stuff happens. We get through the serial storytelling and to the end there's kind of a promise that, oh, now things are gonna be better. We're gonna get back to exploring and we're gonna get back to science. And of course it doesn't really happen because the next season needs to repeat the formula of the previous season. Uh, so it all, all seems like a bit of a tease. Well, so the new season of Discovery is coming out next month and we'll see how much that carries over. But um, I, I find it interesting. I find the second season of Discovery especially interesting because there is an attempt to sort of step back from the darkness and say, okay, we're going to have more fun. They introduce new characters who seem more like classic Trek characters who embody those virtues of nobility and, and fair play and stuff like that. And that works pretty well, but there's still kind of this, oh, but we need the dark stuff too. We need the dark stuff. Uh, we'll come out at the other end of it at the end, but it's like, oh, but we have to sit through a lot of like dark, grim episodes in the meantime. 
that's prestige television now. That is prestige television. And, um, you, you know, I, I don't find these newer shows wor worthless. Like I, I actually enjoy them on their own terms, but I am sympathetic to those people who say, oh, but it's strayed too far from the brand that uh, this isn't what you expect from Star Trek. This isn't what you, you want from Star Trek. But they were saying the same thing about Deep Space Nine and its time as well. Oh, yeah, no. So uh, this is a, f a familiar kind of rhetorical posture. There's like nothing is ever Star Trek <laughs> to Star Trek fans. There's always somebody saying that, uh, that there's always like some lit litmus test that it's failing. That's just, that's pretty consistently been the case. Well, and I mean... There's the there's the new series of films which have met with similar criticism that they're they're oh, yes, too absolutely. much like Star Wars, mm -hmm. and not enough like Star Trek. That they're too much like dumb action films. Uh, the The Onion had a, a great headline when the 2009 film came out, the first of that series, and it was like a Trekkies bash new film as fun watchable, <laughs> and, and it's like yes, that was completely accurate. <laughs> That's exactly what they did. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I I remember watching uh, the the first of that of that in the theater, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt I felt very much as somebody who who loved uh, Next Generation and that in that iteration, which was really close to the ideas of the original series in many ways. I mean, yeah. it was you know a little bit more logical, like you don't send the captain of the ship on every mission. Um, but it really heavily, heavily influenced by Star Wars and dumb action films and all that. But I like how they at least tried to meld the series together. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it was entirely successful, but it at least acknowledged that there's this very large body of work that they are working within that mm -hmm. needed to be brought forward. Yeah, I mean, I, that... Um trying this thing uh, and of course using Leonard Nimoy was important to this as a kind of imprimatur. I've never been a hundred percent sure on how to pronounce that word. <laughs> um, but, you know, giving almost this clerical approval to this new project, you know, helped a bit. And it is kind of clever. It's like, okay, you're doing something that's a sequel and a prequel at the same time, but also gives you license to freely rewrite uh, whatever you want. Personally, I would have been okay with a reboot. I would have been okay if it's just, okay, we just start in the era of the original series, cast new actors, uh, change what you want, just don't kind of change the fundamental premise. I think I would have been fine with that with no, mm -hmm. uh, with no canonical tie-in, you know, that would have been okay for me. Uh, but uh, I know there are a lot of fans who, who just wouldn't have stood for that, you know, mm -hmm. that uh, we need it to be connected with what came before. Otherwise you're just doing something different. You might as well give it a different name. I wonder, and, and you've probably thought about this a lot more. I mean, if that's not in part, the success of Next Generation. I mean, the original Star Trek series only lasts, is it three? Three years, yeah. Three years, um, but builds this enormous fan base, um, mm -hmm. mostly through reruns, um, so that when the Next Generation comes, a lot of time has passed, but it, you know, it, it's back on the Enterprise. It's, it's a new cast of characters, but they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, better production values, all that stuff you know, in, in some cases, much better actors. Um, and then all of the other ones have tried to kind of add on to the existing world building. 
and and there's been some success and some missteps um yeah for for sure i mean uh, one of the reasons why for a voyager they 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 wanted the premise of okay send the ship to the other side of the galaxy and it was like okay because our end of the galaxy just felt too filled in that there wasn't like an, an opportunity for exploration and, and stuff like that, which seems to reflect a failure of imagination to me on, on some sort of level. It's like, um, there's still like unexplored space. Just go to the edge of where we've been and keep going, right? You know, um, that it, it seemed like overkill to be like, okay, you have to, to remove yourself from everything in order to find anything new. And then the, the problem was, again, I'm ragging on Voyager. It's like, in terms of storytelling, it doesn't break the mold nearly enough. It's like, mm-hmm. it plays as a kind of TNG light. It's just with a few, a few uh, modifications, including isolation, but it doesn't really deal with the, like the psychological consequences of that isolation either. It's just more like, Oh, we can't call Starfleet for help if we were in a problem. And that, okay, fine, good. That's good. Um, I feel like I've lost the plot on your, on your question a little bit. Uh, the, oh, that the, the idea was that, you know, the world just feels a little too filled in. And yeah. that's what we get on Deep Space Nine. It's like, well, we're not, to some extent, we're introducing new elements about the Gamma Quadrant, but it's more like, let's take our established players like the Cardassians and like the Klingons and the Romulans, and let's really get into their politics. And it's, so it's more like the West Wing, you know, it's more like the West Wing in space where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we know who the players are. Let's see how they interact when when new situations confront them. Yeah. Um, Deep Space Nine also had the um, interesting, it took the interesting choice of, of like retelling story, the story from the original series, the Tribble episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, which again, just like, okay, this, this is interesting to me. Um, and it, yeah, I can see why it has that cult status because it, though the Next Generation brought in guest stars from the, the original series, not in, not in a, a way in which they were trying to interact with the original series in a unique way. Like Deep Space Nine seems to have taken risks in its storytelling. It did. And, you know, it, it, it's mu- far more serialized among other things. And, uh, and it was made by original series fans in a way that I think the other, the, the other uh, Berman era franchises weren't quite so much that you get a sense on Next Generation that is, yes, they want to preserve core concepts like franchise identity from the original series, but they, they reference it pretty fleetingly as, as well. Um, like Kirk's name is said thrice on all of Next Generation, which, which is, is kind of crazy. There's like a Kirk-shaped elephant in the room. They're just saving it for the movies. And, and that went kind of poorly too, but that's another story, but mm-hmm. in generations, but, um, but yes, yeah, Spock comes in and so on. And Scotty comes in in a much right. more, you know, much more everyday kind of fashion. So there were some tie-ins, but you don't get the sense of like, the show is not geeky itself about mm-hmm. the original series. And it may be because there was so much pressure to establish its own identity as not just being like, like a rehash, you know, uh, where I think that maybe that pressure has been lifted by the time DS9 comes about. So there are lots of kind of kind of jokey references to the original series here and there. And the Tribbles episode is sort of an episode length version of that. It's like mm-hmm. a very affectionate outright homage. Um, 
And Voyager did a, a comparable episode around the same time. This was for the 30th anniversary of the franchise mm. called Threshold, which tied in with Star Trek VI and, and Sulu came on as a guest star and so on. Mm. It's just like, it doesn't work nearly as well. There isn't that sense of affection to it. It just feels like a kind of rote outing. Um, and everybody's forgotten, you know, kind of forgotten that one where they remember the Tribbles one. Mm. How do you see the franchise changing over time? there was a lot of talk about the Picard series Mm -hmm. Um, in part, I think kind of what we've been talking about now that nostalgia for, and, you know, reintroduction of familiar uh, characters that we love and want to see back. Where do you see the franchise going forward? Well, this, we're at a really interesting moment because there's a, a kind of big proliferation going on right now. Um, so there are like literally three series on the air, like right now. Well, not on the air because Picard technically isn't on the air right now, but there are three series in production, uh, Lower Decks, Discovery and Picard, all of which are quite different from each other. Uh, and there's at least three others on the slate too. There's another animated series called Prodigy, which is supposed to be more, more like youth oriented, whereas Lower Decks is more like adult animation. There's a spy show around Section 31, and there's much debate about whether that will actually happen because it's kind of been a little quiet about that. But then there's Strange New Worlds. So this is sort of the one that's capturing everybody's imagination. So this is sort of a semi-sequel to Discovery and a prequel to the original series taking place on Captain Pike's Enterprise. Hmm. Uh, So uh, that's sort of the one that people are pinning their hopes on as being like, okay, back to form there. Uh, and already they're saying it's going to be less serialized. It's going to be more optimistic, more centered around exploration, which neither Discovery nor Picard have been like even slightly really. Um, even th- the title Strange New Worlds would seem to to promise that. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, I think what we're seeing now is a kind of lateral expansion where people are saying this universe is very capacious. It can withstand different kinds of storytelling simultaneously. So why not just run with that? I, I do worry that things are starting to look a little stretched thin. Um, and I think that that was the problem that, uh, that they encountered before, that after TNG, uh, there was just an assumption that the goodwill of the public would stay with them and that it would translate to ratings for these new shows. And it it just didn't like DS9 and Voyager didn't have anywhere near the ratings that TNG had on its worst day, basically, you know, Uh, on the other hand, they both lasted seven years. They like, uh, they were successful by the standard terms of, of, uh, of uh, syndicated series. No question about that. Um, So I'm, I'm just looking at this moment with a kind of fascination, a kind of academic fascination and a fan's fascination saying, okay, well, if we're really going to have like six shows simultaneously, who could realistically be expected to keep up with all of that? (laughs) Are we really targeting niche audiences separately to each other? Is that what's going on here? Uh, And I don't, this seems unsustainable to me, but I don't know, perhaps I'll be surprised. Yeah, I, I think it would just require enough Star Trek fans to care about a spy show, for example, mm-hmm. um, or enough spy fans to not care that it's set in the Star Trek world. It's an interesting challenge they've placed before themselves because, yeah, that could 
I, I could see, I could see what you're saying. Like the, the failure, um, the, the being stretched too thin, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard to gauge the success of these shows because if you go on the internet, you get a lot of angry fans and then, you know, a lot of fans reacting to the angry fans and so on. And where at one point ratings were a reasonably accurate gauge of how many people are actually watching this, uh, streaming platforms don't release numbers like that. So it's a little more mysterious how much these things are being viewed. On the other hand, they've been renewed. Uh, like, and they've been renewed for multiple seasons. I think both Picard and Discovery have been renewed for several seasons into the future. It's not just one season at a time now. So enough people must be watching to make it financially worthwhile. Um, and I think it's, it, it's easy to overlook the presence of the non-fan audience. Um, it's something that, jo- that Jonathan Gray talks about. So it's like not everybody watching is a fan. Uh, and not everybody watching necessarily is going to uh, feel that level of investment, but they might watch it if it's interesting to them in some way. Uh, and the, but these fans don't care about canon. You, you know, this is that's an annoying term, but it does get used quite a lot. Uh, they don't care if everything fits perfectly into the Star Trek universe as it, as it's been established. Um, but some fans do care about that thing to various, various degrees, but non-fans don't, you know, as such, uh, they care for the broad strokes of franchise identity. So maybe they would hop aboard for something like, like strange new worlds, if it feels more like what they think Star Trek is. Mm -hmm. And like, like you say, maybe the spy show might be a success if, uh, it generates an audience and it's being built as a star vehicle for Michelle Yeoh. So, so stardom is also in play and there's all of those things too. So I, I think that uh, uh, your question was like, what does the future look like? Well, the future looks like saturation as, as near as I can tell, like maybe oversaturation, but also a lot of variety. So it will be at least interesting to see what happens next. <laughs> You, uh, we were talking earlier, you have two pieces that will be coming out in the next while. Can you say anything about those, what you've been working on? Uh, yeah, so well, there's the piece that I've described about uh, prestige television. That's an academic piece. And uh, I don't know exactly when that will come out, uh, sometime next year, I think. But also my wife and I, she works at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, are working on a piece about Star Trek and human rights for their website. So this is a different kind of writing because it's supposed to be more for a general audience. And um, so uh, that's fun too, you know, uh, but there's a certain amount of back and forth about, okay, should we say this? Should we say this? Uh, it's, it's a different genre of writing. So, you know, I always like to think of myself as somebody who can write for a academic audience or a general audience. Uh, but there's, there's certain challenges in, in, you know, mode switching uh, to get just the right level. Uh, so there's that, and there are various other things <laughs> I have coming out at all times. Uh, I, and more things that I just got a message today saying, hey, you know, you were supposed to have filed this a couple of days ago. All right, all right, yeah. Uh, but as you know, there are, in academic writing, the deadlines tend to have a different, uh, different status than they do in, yes. in journalism, say. There are suggestions more mm-hmm. than anything else. Exactly. I, and I don't have anything forthcoming there, but I have had a couple of pieces published at the, uh, the Star Trek official site. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I like to say that I'm an official Star Trek writer with like an asterisk there. Um, like not for the show, but for the official site. So that's kind of official, right? Like I've yeah. 
I've gotten checks from CBS. Uh, that would have been That's great. For, I, I would have been, that, if I were more into a vague booking, that might've been a good one. It's like a contract just arrived from CBS. Uh, <laughs> well, if you, you send me the links and I will put them in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Would you be up for a quick um, back and forth, quick answer question thing? Sure, absolutely. On just general geekiness, because I know you have lots of interests. <laughs> All right. What is your most treasured piece of geeky memorabilia or merchandise? Yeah, so that, that's an interesting one because I've, I've never been a big collector of, you know, of merchandise per se. Uh, but lately I've been... Um, I've been buying up kind of weird pieces of ephemera um, that are mostly books, but here's, here's one that, that I'm not, I don't know if I call it treasured, but I was very happy about this uh, off Facebook marketplace. I bought 40 Star Trek books, novels from a very nice lady in Winnipeg. And, and I, I didn't know what they would be. In fact, the picture that she provided wasn't actually those books, which somewhat surprised me. Um, I guess it was probably just a, a photo she found of Star Trek books. But <laughs> that was better than taking a picture of the book she had. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe she doesn't have a, a phone. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I was wondering about that. Um, but when I brought it home, I realized that one of them was something that was, which my brother had that I'd lost track of. And it was this Star Trek puzzle book that was published in the late 70s. And, and it's things like, you know, putatively, it's set up as like a Starfleet Academy exam. And there are things mm. like, here's, here's a picture of the bridge, and then you turn it over. And it's like, you, you have to answer questions about, it's like a memory test of oh. things that are, and you, uh, there are lots of things like that. And so some of it's like trivia on episodes, but some of it are like brain teasers, which could just be brain teasers, but are given like a bit of a Star Trek slant somehow. Um, and uh, so I, I was very happy to have found this. I was implausibly happy to have found this book because for years I was trying to remember what the name of it was because oh. I found it. Uh, maybe that could be something I could write about for the official site or at least make a pitch about. Uh, so yeah. I bought up some trivia books and none of them seemed to be this one. So I was very happy to completely by accident found it. Excellent. What is the most recent thing you've geeked out for? Is there anything new Star Trek or not that you've just become a big fan of in the last little while? Well, so my, my wife and I are watching Lovecraft country with great interest and, um, I've been really enjoying how it sort of hops genres episode to episode, that it has this, with a consistent set of characters, it has this anthology show-like feel in that like it's Lovecraftian horror one episode and then in the next episode, it has more of an Indiana Jones vibe. And then, uh, you know, in the next episode, it's a, it's a classic haunted house thriller, that sort of thing. So I, I don't know the extent to which I've geeked out on it. It is after all prestige television. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I have been following it with great interest. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great show. What, is there something that people think you'd be a geek for that you're not? So that's an interesting one. Like the, there are um, lots of other Star uh, uh, there are lots of other science fiction franchises which probably have either a crossover audience with Star Trek or have been touted as fan rivalries over mm -hmm. time, rightly or wrongly. And there's certain of those that I just don't know that much about. So Doctor Who is a good example. I'm sure I've watched two episodes of Doctor Who in my life. 
it's not that I've been actively avoiding it, you know, it's just that there's too much there. And I'm, I tend to be a completist for this sort of thing. And I don't want to take on 50 years of completism. No, it's um, next to impossible. Yeah. I'd also say I'd, I'm not really a, a Star Wars fan. Uh, it's another thing that, that was like in the air, in the water when I was growing up because of my brother and just because of society in general. And um, I, like, I know people who I would say are much more Star Trek, Star Wars fans rather than I am. And it's not that I don't have a rooting interest. Like I don't dislike it. I guess I think of myself as like a non-fan. I'll see the movies you know, I'll follow all that stuff. I'd rather it be good than bad, but it doesn't bother me on a fundamental level if it is bad either. Like a, a solid chunk of it was bad already. Let's let's face that. Um, so I, it's it's that's a case where I'd, I'd say I'd like non-fan rather than anti-fan. It's not that I dislike this, but like of the newer movies, I think maybe two of them I saw in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, the rest, you know, I just caught down the line. I just didn't make a priority of. Is there something that you're a fan of that would surprise people? Well, having small children has exposed me to certain things that I guess I'd sort of say I've become a fan of, like Peppa Pig, for example. Like I, uh, Everyone loves Peppa Pig. Well, and there are new episodes of Peppa Pig that have aired on the BBC that I haven't seen yet. And um, I, I, I'm like actively trying to find ways to find these newer episodes as an antidote, perhaps of to watching the old ones, you know, for the 18,000th time. But I, I do, I would confess a kind of vested interest in, in, you know, what's happening on Peppa Pig. So that is a little surprising perhaps. Uh, that, that surprises me, but I like it. Um, it makes, it makes perfect sense. There are other kids shows, Daniel Tiger, for example, it's like, this is for kids. It's, it's only for kids. It, there's no reason for an adult to watch this other than watching it with a kid where Peppa is legitimately kind of fun and witty. You know, there's enough going on there to entertain an adult, I think. Oh, that, that sounds good. Uh, can people find you on social media? Is there any way that they can reach out, support you, books? Just on Facebook. Um, I, I never set up with Twitter, which I think might be for the best uh, from what people have told me. Uh, but yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Murray Leader. I, I usually do add everybody who... Uh, I have a solid chunk of followers from India since I did a little talk, a little film studies talk uh, remotely in India a few months back. So, Taking over uh, the world, Murray. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.